Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, as a scandal-ridden Catholic Church, international organizations, major corporations, and left-wing philanthropists all push for abolishing capital punishment, we look at the public's responses and the arguments behind them. This is the Influence Watch podcast. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia passed away in January 2016, organized left-wing interests led by the Bermuda-based Atlantic Philanthropies, the Pass-Through Tides Foundation, and the Open Society Foundations, founded by megadonor George Soros, all thought they had a path toward one of their top criminal justice goals, ending the death penalty, ideally by a Supreme Court decision that would find it unconstitutional. That cause was set back by the 2016 elections, and how. Not only did the election of President Donald Trump, who's called for expanding the death penalty for drug crimes, give conservatives the opportunity to replace first Scalia and now retired Justice Anthony Kennedy with constitutionalists likely to uphold capital punishment, but in addition, voters in Nebraska, Oklahoma, and even California passed ballot measures that uphold the use of the death penalty. With the Supreme Court not likely to be open to finding the punishment unconstitutional in the foreseeable future, the debate over if, when, and how the government should take the lives of certain criminals moves into corporate boardrooms and legislative spheres. Well, Mike, uh, we're, we've got a widespread uh, podcast today. And by the way, folks, we have at the end of the show, we'll have an uh, important announcement for you. But um, let's start with the background. What is the current legal status of capital punishment in America? So 31 states and the federal government for, for federal crimes, most notably terrorism, uh, retain the use of the death penalty. Uh, the typical method by which the death penalty is carried out, known as lethal injection, involves injecting the prisoner with a lethal cocktail of sedatives. Um, there are the, uh, you know, the left always likes to point out that the U.S. is uh, an outlier among major Western industrialized democracies. Uh, the European Union, all the European Union countries um, have, abol have abolished the death penalty. Um, most of, you know, all the other countries uh, of, of Europe, Switzerland, Norway, Iceland, have all abolished the death penalty. Um, most of Latin America has abolished the death penalty. The only other major industrialized country that retains and actively uses the death penalty is Japan. Um, and I, uh, you, you'd reminded me of this before the show, and I'd looked, uh, looked this up. Of course, the reason they did it is because they have a Charles Manson-type cult figure uh, whose followers yeah, yeah, most, like to push most, poison ga yeah, yeah, nerve the, gas. The most, the most recent <laughs> use of, of the death penalty by Japan uh, was... Um, 20, 25 years ago or so, there was a terrorist attack by this de by this millennialist death cult, uh, Um Shirin Shinriko, I think is how you pronounce it, um, that involved releasing sarin, uh, a lethal nerve agent, in the Tokyo subway, and it killed um, like about a dozen people, um, injured injured many more. Uh, and the way that the Japanese legal system works is that once all the appeals for all the people convicted with respect to a single crime are settled, then the, the penalties can be carried out, and they were carried out earlier this year. Right. Uh, now, there have been efforts to use the courts uh, to end the death penalty in the U.S. Why don't we go in reverse chronicle, chron order and start with uh, some of the most recent? So 
The most, the most, uh, let's, let's actually start further back in the 1970s. Uh, the, I believe that would still have been the court in the high Brennan period, uh, justice William, William Brennan, uh, namesake of the liberal, uh, judicial policy advocacy group that you can read about on Influence Watch, the Brennan Center for Justice. Yeah, started by his Star- law clerks. Started by, started by mm-hmm. his clerks when Brennan retired. Um, the, this was sort of the high period of liberal judicial activism, of living constitutionalism. Uh, and as part of that, there was a series of Supreme Court cases on the death penalty. And one of those cases ordered a moratorium for... A few, for a few years. It was later overturned, obviously. Uh, but there was a, a brief period when capital punishment was prohibited during this period of the sort of the high uh, liberal... Um, activist. Yeah, liberal period. activist, living constitutionalist jurisprudence, especially in criminal justice. Um, <clears throat> fast forward to today, uh, obviously in... 20, you know, in 2016, Antonin Scalia, the conservative uh, originalist, dies, leaves a vacancy. Liberals start preparing, you know, because it takes a case a couple years to get through the lower courts to get to the point where you can go to the Supreme Court and say, rule on this question. Uh, so there's a, a push by liberal interest groups to get a case to once and for all decide that the death penalty is unconstitutional. Now, that effort suffered a setback, obviously, when Neil Gorsuch is appointed to the court. Uh, the presumption, Gorsuch, like Scalia, uh, is an, uh, an originalist conservative. The presumption is that Gorsuch would <clears throat> likely find that the Constitution, which sort of presupposes the existence of, of, of a death penalty, uh, does not violate the Eighth Amendment. Yes, or, or mm. just, just to, to, to spin that out a t- touch more, there are there's more than one place in the Constitution that explicitly presumes the death penalty uh, is going to exist. Now, the conservative justices would not if if if, if pick a state, if the state of California decides we're not go- you know, they pass a law saying we're not going to have a death penalty. It is inconceivable that any conservative jurist who's ever been on the court would say, "Well, I don't like that. Well, I we, think it's I mean, swell." We, we have nineteen. Have we have one. nineteen states that have, by their legislature. Uh, by their legislative action. Um, there may have been a couple that did it by the courts, but largely by legislative action have refused, you know, have, have said we're not going to have the death penalty. Washington, D.C. Yes. doesn't have the death penalty. It doesn't have the death penalty yes. for local crimes. Puerto Rico doesn't have the death penalty. Uh, yeah, no conservative <clears throat> justice on the court is going to say, yeah, is going, is going to I say, prefer that is going legislatures to say that, pass laws. That Puerto Rico or that Michigan have to have, both of which have abolished. Uh, have to have the death penalty. Yes. So just to make it a little clear just how egregious it is for a left-wing justice who has no respect for the Constitution's black and white text or for the the system of government that it presumes where people get to make their own laws uh, is uh, thinks nothing of saying, yeah, well, you know, I really don't think that's a good thing. Plus, you mentioned about the international stuff. Of course, some of the left-wing justices like to make the point, well, you know, in international law, this the, the, the death penalty isn't and this is, respected. And, right, but, and, and this is where we get to the present day, or just before the present day. Uh, no. So March 2018, uh, this is back when Anthony Kennedy is still sitting on the court. Anthony Kennedy has in the past expressed openness to looking at international law and practice. Um, 
And so an Arizona man convicted of a double murder, uh, petition, you know, the, it is petitioned on his behalf to the Supreme Court to ask the question whether the death penalty in and of itself violates the Eighth Amendment in light of contemporary standards of decency. That contemporary standards of decency, by the way, is written explicitly for Anthony Kennedy. Um, you know, we, you may remember from our podcast about his retirement and we were discussing the groups that we're going to be fighting that are, as we speak, fighting over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh to replace him, to replace uh, former Justice Kennedy. Um, that, you know, Kennedy's jurisprudence is very airy-fairy. Again, I think it was Sarah Bamari of Commentary who called it a jurisprudence of balderdash. That's probably <laughs> the most accurate, uh, most accurate descriptor of it. Um, to get an idea of how serious this challenge was, uh, the chief counsel, the, the lawyer who wrote the, who wrote the brief was Neil Katyal, uh, who was after the appointment of Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court acted as solicitor general in the Obama administration. Yes. And by the way, we should also point out again <laughs> to show the, the, the lack of respect for the rule of law or even just the barest consistency that the, the Justice Kennedys and others who are willing to at times invoke international law and practice, meaning what other countries do, well, they did it on a highly selective basis because, just to take a, uh, an example at random, abortion laws in Europe actually tend to be much less radically pro-abortion than America, American abortion law under our judge-made law of Roe v. Wade and the Casey decision and whatnot. No one says, oh, well, we should have laws on abortion as restrictive as Sweden because that's what Europe does. They only use it when it fits their particular policy preferences and ignore it when it doesn't. But uh, but you, you mentioned um, the, the groups now fighting over the Kavanaugh nomination, and of course, uh, some of those same groups are active in the death penalty uh, question. So let's talk a bit about the, the funders uh, behind so the, the death penalty challenge. The, the biggest, it's neither not the biggest funder, but the funder that's probably most specifically interested in the death penalty issue, in death penalty abolition is the Proteus Fund, which is a, like the Tides Foundation, which is like the Tides Foundation. Uh, so left wing, it's an ideological left wing group that rather than, you know, the traditional, a traditional foundation like the Ford Foundation or like Open Society Foundations uh, or, you know, MacArthur Foundation, uh, rich guy makes a lot of money <clears throat> doing something. Uh, he knows that he is going to pass on into the next, into the next world. He sets up a corporate entity to hold some portion of his wealth, some substantial portion of his wealth writes said corporate entity a check and that institution continues its its existence and you know liberal foundations don't have to worry about donor intent typically so they can exist perpetually uh they exist perpetually off the uh appreciation of the assets that they were given so I'm pretty sure the Ford Foundation was seeded by a bunch of Ford Motor Company stock, was it not? Exactly. The whole the whole yeah. problem was that Henry Ford's lawyers came to him and said, the government's going to take most of your fortune unless we find some way to keep it out of the greedy government's hands. And we think the way we should do that is by your dumping your stock into a foundation. And of course, because capitalists have to worry about donor intent, the Ford Foundation now uses the money that uh, was it Henry Ford one or Henry Ford two? Henry Ford one. Henry Ford one mm -hmm. uh, tried to hide away from the tax man to take everyone's money and give it to the tax man. Yes. Um, <clears throat> well, life is full of irony. Uh, life is full of irony. Uh, so what Proteus Fund, Tides Foundation, on the right, there's Donors Trust. 
uh, what they do is you are you are a rich guy, you have money you would like to uh, put towards an ideological cause, uh, but you don't want to go through all the trouble of setting up a corporate entity and hiring people and, uh, you know, wondering whether your heirs are going to do what you want to do with it. So there's this already existing corporate entity run by people who are ideologically committed to whatever the ideology is. Uh, you write them a check, and they decide then what to do with it. Now, you can also have a donor-advised fund, which is where you tell those managers, give it to X group. Um, so what Proteus Fund does is they take money from they take money from liberal rich guys and liberal foundations and package it and put it into into projects, one of which uh, is the Eighth Amendment project, which was a was and is the long-term campaign to find um, the magical case that is going to get the Supreme Court to overturn the death penalty. Yes, well, or or forbid uh, citizens from governing themselves on this uh, policy question. Yes. So, and one of the ways. Uh, uh, they're not just seeking cases of uh, of grotesque murderers that they can claim should somehow not suffer the, the death penalty, but they also are even working against the means typically used of the death penalty. Is that not well, right? They, they and others. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned that Europe has universally gotten rid of the death penalty. Uh, a lot of major pharmaceutical companies, which make the cocktails of sedatives, which make the sedatives that go into the cocktails that are used to uh, that are used for executions, uh, they both for their own corporate ethical reasons and because the Europe various parts of European law have started sniffing around about trying to prohibit it and sanction uh, company companies that uh, assist in judicial executions, uh, they have started to say no, 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 no. You can't use our you can't use our products for this. We won't sell it. We won't, no state of there was a case in uh, in Nevada where a drug maker, I believe it was a European drug maker, uh, went to the court and said, you know, we insist that the state not use our drug for executions. And the uh, Nevada Supreme Court said that they had the right to proscribe the state of Nevada from buying the execution drugs from them. Yep. And, uh, and the, we should add that there are left-wing activist groups that have tried to, uh, in various ways to, not just that way, but also sometimes like just forbid the, the manufacturer of a drug or, or whatnot. So they're trying to make it impossible for the states to actually obtain the drugs that they use in the, in the, uh, cocktails, as you put it, and the and the we should explain to folks about the you know the typically the way the cocktails work is uh, that the the uh, person to be executed first is given sedatives, so that essentially it's like you're going to have an operation. You know, you're you're if they're going to take your appendix out, they knock you right. out they, so you don't they, feel your appendix. They put yeah they they. It's a, a like a sedative and muscle relaxant, and then what actually kills you. Yes, and then what kill, and then they give you a, a dose of a drug that's going to stop your heart from beating, yeah. uh, and that's the the way it works. And so the again in ironies, well, I mean, and here here's where I kind mm -hmm. of have to jump in. You know, that's the theory of how it works. Uh, the there have been a number of cases where it hasn't gone like that, and I think that this is there's a very important. Uh, line that should be drawn when we're talking about whether the death penalty is humane in terms of getting, uh, causing an in, uh, effectively instantaneous, effectively, I mean, 
dying hurts, but you know, minimally, minimally painful uh, death, and whether it's merely bloodless. Uh, you know, if you want to kill somebody immediately, instantaneously, and irreversibly, the guillotine does that. It's also very bloody. Uh, so I don't necessarily advocate bringing back the guillotine, but I think that supporters of the death penalty with something like lethal injection were kind of, were, I think the way that it set, sets up as completely bloodless, it doesn't look like you're, like you're killing somebody. Because that, that's, what, that's what we're doing. We have decided, you know, we, the state, we, the government, we, the people who elect the government, have decided that there are some crimes for which a man must pay with his life. And by using this sort of pseudo-medicalized pseudo <clears throat> procedure with what looks like an, with effectively an operating table and guys and, you know, guys with a, guys with a needle, rather than you know, men in uniform, you know, men in police uniforms with police hats and 30-06 rifles, that are we making it clear to ourselves the moral consequences of what we're doing? That we are, we have decided this man must die, so we are going to kill him. Yes. So, well, uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's entirely reasonable to, for people to ask uh, the proponents of the death penalty whether lethal injection makes sense as a method. At the same time, the the left wing opponents of it should have to uh, you know should not be able to h hide as they sometimes have by surreptitiously trying to prevent the uh, the uh, obtaining no, of I, the drug cocktail and then turn around and say because you can't obtain the drug right, cocktail and I, you and can't I, and, I, and, I, and I agree with that and I think but I think that it therefore follow you know that it therefore follows that we do have to ask that question about the uh, about are we using a bloodless method or a humane method? And they may not be the same. And, you know, again, I, I believe, you know, I, I favor retaining capital punishment for serious crimes. And I think the purpose of it is for the state to enact, to enact retribution for the most heinous offenses. But I think a part of that retribution is that we, you obviously support capital punishment, uh, we who support it have to be very clear that this is what we are doing and this is why we are doing it. And I don't think, and I, I question sometimes whether strapping a man to a table and sticking a needle in his arm does that. No, that's, uh, well, uh, that's, that's a good segue because, uh, I want us to, to, to take a step back from the, the funding and the activist group for a second and discuss the, the bigger picture arguments about this. Now, we've been discussing here one of the arguments, which is uh, objections to the death penalty um, methods yeah, objections, that are used. Objections to the process of lethal yeah. injection. Um, there's also the uh, objections based uh, on the claim that it's unfair or arbitrary, and then lastly, that it's wrong in principle. So let's let's turn next then to the, to the arbitrary issue. So... You know, many of the left-leaning critics of the American criminal justice system and of the death penalty in particular uh, argue that it is uh, more likely to be used on ethnic minorities. There are very good historical reasons to believe that that might be the case. Uh, one kind of red, sore red thumb statistic, 90% uh, of men who were executed for rape from 1930 to 1967 were African-American. That is wildly out of line with both the, obviously the proportion in the general population, but also the proportion who committed comparable crimes. Uh, now, 
since 1967 that has the the number obviously well another judicial intervention uh the supreme court has ruled that it is unconstitutional to use capital punishment for any any crime other than murder uh, or crime that leads to death as if murder terrorism drug the supreme court invented this term that hasn't been well defined drug kingpin activity <laughs> uh I, I believe that is one of anthony kennedy's <laughs> contributions to american jurisprudence um unless the crime leads to intentional death the supreme court has ruled it cannot be uh punished by death uh so now looking at murder uh from 1977 to 1999 uh african-american men have actually received fewer death sentences than their share of murders now there are a couple of weird reasons that a couple of weird dynamics interacting with this while black murderers are less likely to be punished by death white victims are more likely to have their murderer punished by death most most violent crime in the united states is committed by people against people uh, people against people they know the way that the united states social dynamics interact that's mostly people of the same race so most whites are most whites who are murdered are murdered by other whites result if you're punishing white victim you know punishing murderers more harshly for white victims you're going to punish more white murderers more harshly but there's another less we, we want to discuss self-government there's a self-government issue because most african-american murder victims are in jurisdictions where more of the voters are african-americans and african-americans are more likely to sit on juries and african-americans largely oppose the death penalty and are less likely to institute it so again is to the, the extent to which it is you know racist white juries punishing murderers of whites more harshly versus african-american jurors exercising their sort of sovereign right to not institute the death penalty it kind of not clear <laughs> yes well uh it's it's certainly tricky and and <clears throat> and i would i'd completely agree with you that uh if the system is systematically discriminating um against any racial group that's appalling uh and that and that I mean, would work even, to delegitimize yeah, and, and even the, and even, the, the even the appearance hurts the credibility of the credibility and and that's part of why i i believe we should reserve the death penalty more i mean you know does does uh Hanayev, the uh the terrorist who committed the boston marathon bombing he's the kind of person i would target for capital punishment <laughs> sure uh and um uh I guess you could say of uh, another version of this kind of of the kind of thing we're getting into now is uh, some people oppose the death penalty because of the uncertainty that always revolves around uh, cases. Yeah, there's a, there. So here we're getting into now arguments about the death penalty in principle, and there's a weak. The weak argument is that argument from uncertainty that we can't know with any with ontological, you know, God God's eye view certainty. I mean, we can know with reasonable human certainty whether somebody did it, but we can't know whether they, you know, were they hearing voices? Were they 
fully and totally sane, fully and totally responsible for their actions. Uh, of course, you take this argument to its logical conclusion, and then the only punishments that are valid are fines and forfeitures, because you can, of course, you can restore, if you find somebody and it turns out they didn't do it, you can give them their money back. You can give them their money back with yeah. interest. But you can't, if you, you put them in if prison. If you put them in jail, you can't give them their time back. You, know, yes. you can give them money compensation for that time, but if you offered... You know, the, these poor guys who get sent away for, you get sent away for 20 years for a rape they didn't commit, then DNA evidence, you know, then they finally test the DNA evidence. Oops, they didn't do it. You know, even if they get, you know, a million dollar set, a million dollar or $2 million settlement, you know, if, if you shot them full of truth, you probably don't even need to shoot them full of truth serum. They'll probably straight up tell you, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have a quarter of my life back. Um, obviously it's better that they, you know, it's better that they were given prison rather than, <clears throat> rather than the death penalty, because there is at least some reversible reversibility imprisonment. But as you know, in these cases where you know we know Timothy McVeigh was responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing, we know he did it. Uh, you know, maybe we don't know ontologically whether <clears throat> he was fully and totally and completely sane to the extent a you know crazy conspiracy theorist terrorist can be fully and completely sane but you know there's no doubt you know the, again there's no doubt as to his perpetration of the crime yeah. well uh, the i would just interject that the the traditional common law understanding of an insanity defense uh was reasonable and and limited i think and the way to the, the simplest way i've heard it explained is if i strangle you to death and I think that I'm wringing a dish rag and not someone's neck, that is yeah, that insanity that pro prohibits me from being punished for my action because I genuinely yeah. didn't and, even and as, understand and the as we've gotten And as we've gotten more knowledge about mental illness, okay, well, if I believe, you know, if I'm wringing your neck and I believe that Pope Pius Thirteenth is telling me that, you know, Jesus is commanding me to do it, then I'm not fully responsible for my actions. Um, you know, it's it's not as you know, it's not as simple as you know. Well, I was angry, therefore. Uh, but you know, all, all of these, ultimately, all of these sort of un uncertainty questions, I find I find are lacking because there are cases where we know we know the perpetrator with reasonable human certainty. You know, even more than beyond a reasonable doubt that we know with reasonable human certainty that they knew what they were doing <clears throat> uh, and that therefore we have as as a state we have no choice but to punish them the only question is how yeah. well now let's let's move to the to the most uh extreme form of the argument which is uh held in including by some uh, notable conservatives like charles uh cook charles at the cook, national Will. review for instance that uh that the government should never kill uh so i will i will let mr cook the editor of national review online i will give him i will give him the credit of using his own words to outline his argument quote I'd venture we also expect a police officer arresting a violent criminal to spare his charge because we draw a moral distinction between people who are threatening us and people who are not. Morally, does this calculation really change if the guilty person has been brought, th brought through court? 
By and large, we execute people in the United States by choice and not by necessity, as retribution or as an example to others, which we call deterrence, or because it brings closure to the bereaved. We, we do it not so that those inside the prison gates might be safer, but so that those outside feel that justice has been served, performing in ceremony what Albert Camus called, quote, the most premeditated of murders, close quote. Uh, so that's the argument. The argument is essentially that, you know, obviously if you or I <clears throat> were in a self-defense situation, and let's assume we're in Virginia where stand your ground applies <laughs> and there's no duty to retreat and there's a castle doctrine and all that, uh, you know, <clears throat> if somebody came at me with a, if, if I'm in Virginia and I'm, and assume I was legally authorized to carry a concealed firearm and somebody came at me with a, with a, uh, a tire jack, you know, a jack handle or something, crowbar, uh, you know, and I, I can draw my weapon and, and shoot that person possibly to death. Uh, now if I pull my weapon, he drops the tire iron, I can't shoot him. He's no longer a threat if he, if he surrenders. And what Cook is doing essentially is applying that logic to the state, that a police officer, an agent of the state, can kill the guy with the crowbar if he's coming at him. But if he's subdued him and taken him into custody and he's been judged by 12 and found guilty of, in this case, it would be attempted murder, uh, but if he's been found guilty of murder, then that's the same as if he dropped the crowbar, as if he were coming at me and he dropped the crowbar. Yeah, but I, I, I actually uh, object to multiple mm -hmm. things that, that Cook says there. Um, I mean, he, well, it's complicated. He's saying, he's saying that he is claiming to know the motivations behind the reasons that people support the death penalty, which is not the same thing as the moral question of the rightfulness of the death penalty. Um, I don't personally, uh, as a proponent of the death penalty, I don't think that he says, you know, we, uh, we don't do it so that those inside the prison gates might be safer. Well, I care about that. Uh, if some poor guy is working as a prison guard I mean, I mean, and they I, are killed from there, time there are, to time. I mean, there are cases where, prisoner, where prisoners who are in for life murder other prisoners. Yes. I mean, I care about the prisoners' lives. I don't think that their lives are insignificant. And I don't think that the prison guards' lives are insignificant. Um, so, so that isn't true. There's also, he does mention here, uh, deterrence, um, and that too, is, I don't think that's the sum total of the moral argument, but that's a significant part of the moral argument. There are no shortage of cases where people in the midst of committing heinous crimes, uh, have stepped back or reconsidered because like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. They, they've said people, you know, victims have heard criminals say, no, I can't do that because I'd be liable for that. I will penalty. quibble here a bit. There, there is very little statistical evidence. There is very little statistical evidence that shows any sort of wide, I mean, again, maybe in a particular case, uh, somebody drops the crowbar because they fear the, because they fear the noose. Nationwide statistics don't show this. Well, as, it's, as, a, as a as a general as a general. Well, it is absolutely the case that that the you know no reasonable person would say that deterrence always works. Uh, the precise degree of effect is is unknowable. the The one thing you could say is obviously that there there are certainly criminals who are indifferent 
to such, you know, to the, to the, absolutely there would be ones indifferent, but there are, but there absolutely are ones who, well, and, and, who do and, care. And, and here's where, and here's where, again, I come, I come at support for, retain, for retaining the death penalty from a different angle. It's precisely those people who cannot be deterred. The, uh, the Timothy McVeigh's, the uh, Dylan Roof, the terrorist who shot up the uh, African American church in, in Charleston, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Sarnev, uh, you know, if we had taken any of the, you know, if we had taken Osama bin Laden alive, if we had, you know, I, I mean, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is sitting in a, sitting somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he should face, you know, my belief is he should face trial for his life. These people who have committed a crime against the state so heinous and so threatening to the very existence of our social fabric. I mean, the Roof case is sort of a perfect example here. If you read, you know, his manifesto apparently was that he was going to spark race war in South Carolina. Now, knowing anything about the history of the United States, that is a a motive threatening the entirety of our social fabric. And, you know, again, whether the the vic- you know whether the victims' families want it or not, the state must must put its must put its foot down in the most clear and the most total fashion that it can. In 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 my view, uh, yeah. Well, this is the, uh, this gets us to the uh, to religious questions again about the in principle whether the the rightness or wrongness of it. You are talking, of course, about. Retribution or paying justice to the to the most heinous of criminals. That we and pay and paying justice, not and and you know, because again, one of the objections would be that well, if the families want to forgive, well, but the state cannot. the 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 state, the state must carry out. It must must carry out its role. Uh, Yes. Uh, and, 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 you know, again, if the families wish to forgive, that is that is their right. That is their Christian charity. But the state has no, the state has none. Well, and, and, and the, the two things are separate anyway. The, the justice and mercy, uh, especially, by the way, um, sadly, I don't think our current pope has a very clear understanding of this, but uh, which I regret to say as a, as a zealous convert to Catholicism. But... Um, the, the, the things are not opposed at all, which is one reason why there's no saint on record as being appalled by the death penalty. In fact, there are saints on record as praying for the conversion at the gallows of of criminals because those things are separate. The justice is done by the state to remedy the disorder in the, uh, society, and God's forgiving the person or uh uh, friends and loved ones of a victim forgiving the person, those are not remotely in conflict. It's not the same. The, the mother of the murdered child does not stand in the same relation to the criminal as the government does, which which must care about such things being and, and, done. And I, and I think we can see some of this sort of fundamental imbalance in, in retribution in what has been the European experience. Uh, several years ago, there was uh, a, I think it's fair to call him a neo-Nazi, uh, uh, attack. Scandinavia. Yeah, yeah. In in Norway, uh, he made an assassination attempt on the prime minister, which was actually a diversion from an attack on the Norwegian Labour Party's youth retreat for members of the Young Labour Party. Uh, killed, I want to say, some more than seventy people. 
uh, the maximum sentence and the maximum punishment that he could receive under Norwegian law is essentially 21 years at Club Fed at a, at a, a, at a prison facility that we in the United States would consider minimum, effectively minimum security. Uh, now, it's a little bit more restrictive than that. He's effectively in solitary confinement, which is a serious punishment, but 21 years for 70 dead. That strikes me as out of balance. Yes, and the the uh, one of the things uh, about all this that should matter to us is, uh, on the one hand, we don't want just mob the the the, the pure revenge and uh, idea of mob violence is a bad thing. Right. That's another reason that you should have the government doing this with proper due pro with with all right. due with, process. With the, the government carrying it process, out rather than appeals, mobs. Cause it, yeah, because mobs. And because mobs have no mobs have no justice. Mobs. The more your legal system looks like a mob, the more it looks like the American legal system from the '30s, where, you know, where we have severe racial and ethnic disparities and the way punishments are handed out. Where we have, uh, uh, you know, the the more orderly, the more procedural. Uh, you know, again, it can be frustrating to see these things taking twenty, you know, fifteen, twenty years. But to prevent error and to ensure a and to ensure a just outcome, this is necessary. Yes. Well, and and the point about justice, of course, is precisely that people are responsible for their actions. The the one of the silliest things the the current pope has said is that the death penalty is an assault on human dignity, as if the only way to be kind to human dignity uh, is to be uh, gentle, uh, you know, in all things. Well, first of all, any marine drill instructor could explain to you that that isn't true. Any decent father of a child could tell you that that's nonsense. And the death penalty is carried out on you if you have done a horrible thing because you are a moral agent who can be held responsible. Any, if, I, if a I mean, dog this, this killed applies, someone, this applies we, to any it, to any criminal punishment. You know, yes. you, you know, you put somebody away for, you know, a a, a year for theft or, um, you know, five years for uh, sexual assault. You know, it is because you knowingly and with either, you know, I mean, in the case of murder, malice, aforethought, but in in the case of and, you know, lesser crimes, you should have known better. Because we know that you should have known better, we feel it appropriate to exact retribution from you. Yes, we treat you as, we give you the dignity of being a moral agent that is responsible in a way that a true crazy person or an infant or an animal is not. Plus, of course, we show respect for the dignity of the person you murdered. That person's dignity needs vindication as well. Um, so, and, and, but even the thing to remember too is while the, one of the great virtues of a, of a proper death penalty is that the state with careful and proper due process carries it out rather than a mob, but it isn't crazy that people are angry. In fact, there's, I mean, the, the, the anger has to be channeled into the, in, in, properly, but it is, it is in and of itself a good thing to be, I should be angry. If I see you murdered on the street, I should be angry. Now, some of our younger listeners may not appreciate, or may not, memory may not go back to the nadir of New York City in its pre-Giuliani days, but it was notorious that there would be a crime on the street, somebody mugged oh, on the street, left on right, the sidewalk, and, the, and, and people would be indifferent. And the interesting thing, the, the sort of the lesson, I think, of the renaissance of New York City 
is the and you know compare New York City to Chicago. You know, both are <laughs> I interestingly both in non-death penalty states. Um, you know, both what what separates and they both really have they both have very strict gun control. They're both high tax jurisdictions. They both you know demographically are fairly similar. The difference is that New York decided that it was going to take the business of crime and punishment seriously. They were going to they were going to crack down on the networks of crime. They were going to crack down on uh, you know on even low level crime uh, and ensure that that order would be that order would be instituted. And now that they've done that, they're at the point where they can start walking back some of the some of the harsher methods. Uh, you know, the most notable being the stop and frisk uh, uh, police tactic. Whereas Chicago, where corruption has been allowed to fester in the police force and the public uh, public officials have not made uh, getting uh, getting a handle on crime job one, there is there is disorder, and. You know, and again, part of what you have when you have disorder is the law of vendetta. You know, I mean, I don't know how many of the murder, uh, how many of the murders in Chicago are people getting revenge for previous get, murders. Getting, yeah, getting revenge for friends that got that got uh, injured or killed. You know, but the inability of the state to control that sort of behavior breeds further disorder and breeds and breeds what you have. Whereas in New York. You know, because there is now order, the things that liberals say they want from the criminal justice system now are far less costly. Yes. Well, uh, and the last thing I would say is that we mentioned at the beginning that even in the state of California, the populace at large has th this traditional common sense understanding of do wrong, get punished uh, in a way that their supposed betters uh, uh, in power order. do not. It, it, it has to be. You know, I, with the exception of the death penalty, which I believe we should keep, I'm fairly liberal on criminal justice. But the the only way that you can have that is to have order instituted. In the first place. In the first place. Yeah. Well, we'll let you have the last word on that for this week. But as I said at the beginning, we have an announcement, which is beginning next week, we will be switching to a new format for, uh, for the shows. It will feature mostly Mike. It'll be short and... Uh, Quick and lots of uh, updates. Short, quick updates, or you know, uh, you know, obviously, on on this show we've been going, you know, very in depth, very deep into 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 issues and influencers. Uh, the new format will be uh, a little. Most of them will be more, you know, updates. Some of the groups that you've heard about on this show, uh, what are they up to now? What's now that we've now that we've gotten to the bottom of some of these big public policy issues? Uh, what's going on in Washington behind the scenes this you know this week, uh, and who's behind it? That's right. Uh, so uh, we will be keeping the same time for the show. And we want to ask everybody, please, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, you can also find podcasts uh, at the Capital Research Center's YouTube and Facebook pages. We really appreciate you listening uh, and join Mike next week for the next Influence Watch podcast.